Lesson 10 for September 1 through to 7, ready for teaching on the 8th of September, the third missionary journey. Sabbath afternoon, September 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've been following Paul on his journeys around the Mediterranean. And this is his third visit, Lord. We pray that as we open your word, that the lessons we learn from here may be relative to our daily life, but also our understanding of you and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Let's read that again, Acts 20 and verse 24. I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Luke's account of Paul's third journey starts rather abruptly. The text says only that after spending some time in Antioch, the centre of Paul's missions, the Apostle set out on another journey, passing successively through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, as it says in Acts 18.23. So, the first 1,500 miles, or 2,400 kilometres of the journey are covered in one sentence. This is because the focal point of the journey was Ephesus, where Paul spent more time than in any other city in the course of his journeys. From the evangelistic standpoint, the ministry in Ephesus was very fruitful. The impact of Paul's preaching reached the whole province of Asia. And uh, that's detailed in Acts 19, verses 10 and 26. Verse 10, This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And verse 26, And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods, at all. It was probably during this time that the churches of Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea were founded, perhaps through Epaphras, one of Paul's co-workers, who we read about in Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Colossians 1.7 You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And Philemon verse 23 Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. A remarkable thing about this journey is that it is the last one of Paul's recorded in Acts. Paul undertook it as a free man. Luke records yet another journey, this time to Rome, but as a prisoner.
Sunday, September 2, Ephesus Part 1 Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28 records that while Paul was still on his way to Ephesus, a Jewish believer named Apollos came to that city. He was an eloquent man and well-versed in the Scriptures. Reading from Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That Apollos was a follower of Jesus is clear from the way Luke describes him in Acts 18.25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Yet he knows only John's baptism having been baptized by John the Baptist. Apollos became acquainted with Jesus during Jesus' earthly life, but he must have moved away from the area, probably back to Alexandria, before the Passion or Pentecost events. This explains why Aquila and Priscilla would give him further instruction. Though being able to show from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel in verse 28, Apollos needed to be updated as to the developments of Christianity since Jesus' ministry. However, Aquila and Priscilla did more for Apollos. With the other believers in Ephesus, they gave him a recommendation letter addressed to the churches in Archaea, which we read in verse 27, which allowed him to have an effective ministry in Corinth. And that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through to 6. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow." And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12, Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Question. Read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through to 7. What happened to Paul when he arrived in Ephesus? Acts 19, beginning at verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Apollos' story is connected to the account of the twelve men Paul met in Ephesus upon his arrival in that city, because their situation was very similar. Their description as disciples in Acts 19.1 and Paul's question to them in the next verse clearly indicate that they were already believers in Jesus. At the same time, their answer to Paul shows that, similar to Apollos, they were former disciples of John the Baptist, who had become followers of Jesus without having experienced Pentecost. They were to have an opportunity to enjoy a deeper experience with the Lord. Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 282, On his arrival at Ephesus, Paul found twelve brethren who, like Apollos, had been disciples of John the Baptist, and like him, had gained some knowledge of the mission of Christ. They had not the ability of Apollos, but, with the same sincerity and faith, they were seeking to spread abroad the knowledge they had received. End of quote. We should view their new baptism in light of this unique situation. They were not coming from another Christian denomination, nor were they experiencing conversion. They were only being integrated into mainstream Christianity. That they received the Spirit and spoke in tongues probably means they, like Apollos, were Christian missionaries who now were being empowered fully to witness about Jesus Christ wherever they went. Monday, September 3, Ephesus, Part 2 In Ephesus, Paul followed his practice of preaching in the synagogue first. When opposition arose, he and the new believers moved to the lecture hall of a certain Tyrannus, where Paul preached daily for two years. We read about this in Acts 19, verses 8 through to 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Luke's summary of Paul's Ephesian ministry is that the entire province was intensely evangelized. Verse 10 again. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And verse 26. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God's made by humans. Human hands are no gods at all. 
In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through to 20, Luke adds a few miracle stories describing the triumph of God's power in a city where magic and other superstitious practices were rather common. Let's read those verses, Acts 19, beginning at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, "'In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out.'" Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, "'Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you?' Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There is no doubt that God could heal through Paul, but that even handkerchiefs and aprons touched by the apostle had healing powers, we read in verse 12, may sound strange to some, though this bears resemblance to Jesus' healing of the woman with the hemorrhage in Luke 8.44. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. The Ephesian superstitious beliefs may have led God to perform extraordinary miracles, as Luke said in verse 11. This is, perhaps, an example of God's meeting the needs of the people at their own level of understanding. Satisfied with the results of his mission in Ephesus, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. Acts 19 verse 21 reads, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I will visit Rome also. Luke does not give a reason for this trip, but we know from Paul's own writings that he wished to deliver the funds he had collected to relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem church, as we've read in Romans 15, verses 25 to 27. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them." For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And also in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through to 3. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. The pooling of the goods of the first years and a severe famine in the days of Claudius impoverished the Judean believers. 
and Paul saw in their appeal for help in Galatians 2.10 an opportunity to strengthen both their trust in his apostleship and the unity of a now transcultural church, despite knowing the risks to which he would be exposed. As we read in Galatians 2.10, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And Acts chapter 20 verses 22 to 23, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And Romans 15 verse 31, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Question. Read Acts 19 verses 23 to 41. What was the real reason for the opposition to Paul that arose in Ephesus at the end of his stay there? Acts 19, beginning at verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and do not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. 
After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The opposition had to do with pagan worship, which severely was threatened by Paul's ministry. Demetrius's real motivation was clearly financial, but he was able to turn it into a religious matter because the temple of Artemis, or Diana, reckoned as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was located in Ephesus. And so to finish today, read Acts 19.27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Notice how artfully Demetrius was able to bring in religious piety in his attempt to keep the money flowing in. Why must we as Christians be careful not to use our faith, or a pretended piety in regard to our faith, in the same way? Tuesday, September 4. Troas. After the riot that we read about in Acts 19.23-41, Paul resolved to leave Ephesus, but he took an extended detour through Macedonia and Achaia instead of going straight to Jerusalem, as we read in Acts 20 verses 1-3. On this journey, representatives of some Gentile churches were with him, we read in verse 4. Question. Read Acts 20, verses 7 to 12. What's wrong with the common argument that these verses help prove the Sabbath was changed to Sunday? Acts 20, beginning at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third floor and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Paul's stopover in Troas ended with a church meeting on the first day of the week, it said in verse 7. They gathered together to break bread, which probably refers to the Lord's Supper, with or without the fellowship meal that often was combined with it, since the early days of the Jerusalem church, as we read in Acts 2, 42 and 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That there is no mention of a cup nor of any prayers does not rule out this possibility. The point, however, is that this episode often is mentioned as evidence that in Paul's time, at least Gentile churches already had replaced Sabbath with Sunday as a day of worship. Yet, 
Before making such a claim, it is necessary to establish the precise day on which the meeting took place, as well as the nature of the meeting. The reference to the use of lights in verse 8, together with the fact that Paul's message continued until midnight in verse 7, and then until daybreak in verse 11, not to mention the deep sleep of Eutychus in verse 9, makes it clear it was a night meeting. The question, though, is whether it was the night before Sunday or the night after Sunday. The answer depends on what system of time reckoning Luke is using whether the Jewish system from sundown to sundown, or the Roman one from midnight to midnight. If it is the former, then it was Saturday night. In case of the latter, it was Sunday night. Either way, the context of Acts 20 verses 7 to 12 indicates that even if the meeting was on a Sunday night, it was not a regular church meeting, but a special one due to Paul's departure the following morning. It is hard to see, then, how this isolated and exceptional episode affords support for Sunday-keeping. The fact is, it doesn't. And so, to finish today, dwell more on all the reasons for the validity of keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. How does the powerful biblical support for the Sabbath help? affirm us in our identity as Seventh-day Adventist Christians and the calling that we have been given to spread the three angels' messages to the world. Wednesday, September 5, Miletus. On his way to Jerusalem, Paul made another stop, this time at Miletus, where he had the opportunity to convey his farewell address to the Ephesian church leaders. Question. Read Acts 20, verses 15 to 27. What was Paul's emphasis in the introductory part of the speech? Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 15. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia? I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there." I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. 
Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Since he already had made plans for a new journey, which included Rome and Spain, Paul believed that he would never return to Asia. Romans 15 verses 22 to 29 reads, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go down to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ." So he started his speech with a kind of accountability report of the years spent in Ephesus. Such a report, however, aimed not only at the past, that is, the way he had lived among the Ephesians, but also at the future, for he feared what could happen to him in Jerusalem. Paul's fear was not unfounded. The Jerusalem church viewed him with some scepticism, if not hostility, due to his past as persecutor and the circumcision-free gospel he preached, and we read about that in Acts 21 yesterday. To the Jewish authorities, he was nothing but a traitor and an apostate from their religious traditions. Acts 21 verses 20 to 26 reads, When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date where the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. And Acts 23 verses 1 and 2. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. By mid-first century, especially on account of Roman misrule, Judea also was gripped by a revolutionary and nationalistic ideals. This atmosphere influenced all segments of Jewish society, including possibly the church. 
In such context, the activities of that former Pharisee among the Gentiles must have made him a figure of notoriety, as we read in Acts 21, verses 27 through to 36. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people were running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some soldiers and officers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd followed him and kept shouting, Get rid of him! Paul also had more concerns. In Acts twenty twenty-eight to 31 Paul focused on how the church leaders in Ephesus would handle the subject of false teachers, whom he compared to savage wolves, who would try to misguide and pervert the flock. So, even in the church itself, and even in the earliest days of the church, the danger of false teachers was real. As Solomon said in another time, in another context, there is nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. A history of the Christian church reveals the incredible damages that false teachers have brought to the church. The problem will exist until the end too, as it says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. No question, Paul had a lot of things on his mind, a lot of concerns, and yet his faithfulness and his diligence never wavered. So to finish today, read Second Corinthians 4, Verses 8 to 14. What is Paul saying here that we need to apply to ourselves, especially when trials come? Where does Paul put his ultimate hope? Second Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to 
himself. Thursday, September 6, Tyre and Caesarea. After Miletus, Luke records Paul's journey in some detail. Still en route to Jerusalem, the Apostle spends a week in Tyre on the Phoenician coast, where the ship was to be unloaded, as we read in Acts 21, 1-6. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. However, while he was there, the believers urged him not to go to Jerusalem. That the believers were led by the Spirit to warn Paul not to go to Jerusalem is not necessarily in contradiction to the Apostles' earlier guidance. The Greek etherio en to pneumati in Acts 19 verse 21 likely should be rendered as resolved or purposed in the Spirit. And that's how it's translated in three other translations, rather than as if Paul had come to this decision all by himself. The point is that the Spirit may have shown the Tyrrhenian Christians the dangers that lay ahead of Paul, and so, out of human concern, they recommended that he not proceed with his intent. Paul himself was not sure about what would happen to him in Jerusalem. Acts 20, verses 22 to 23, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Divine guidance does not always make everything clear, even for someone like Paul. Question. Read Acts 21, verses 10 through to 14. What special incident took place in Caesarea concerning Paul's trip to Jerusalem? Acts 21, beginning at verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. In a way, similar to some Old Testament prophecies, for instance in Isaiah 20 and Jeremiah 13, his message was an acted one. Acts 20 
Beginning at verse 1 reads, In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon king of Assyria came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has been stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be dismayed and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, See what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? And Jeremiah 13, beginning at verse 1, This is what the Lord said to me, Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So, I bought a belt, as the Lord directed, and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist, and now go to Pereth, and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went to Pereth, as the Lord told me. Many days later the Lord said to me, Go now to Pereth and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Pereth and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. Those who were with Paul apparently took Agabus's message as a warning, not as a prophecy, and so they tried by all means to convince the apostle he should not go up to Jerusalem. Though deeply touched by their reaction, Paul was determined to accomplish his mission, even at the cost of his own life. For him, the integrity of the gospel and the unity of the church were more important than his own personal safety or interests. From the Acts of the Apostles, page 397 and 398, we read, Never before had the Apostle approached Jerusalem with so sad a heart. He knew that he would find friends and many enemies. He was nearing the city which had rejected and slain the Son of God, and over which now hung the threatenings of divine wrath. End of quote. And so to finish today. Misunderstood, maligned, mistreated, and often reviled. Paul nevertheless pressed on in faith. How can we learn to do the same in discouraging circumstances? Friday, September 7. From the Acts of the Apostles, page 390, we read, The success attending the preaching of the gospel aroused the anger of the Jews anew. 
From every quarter were coming accounts of the spread of the new doctrine by which Jews were released from the observance of the rites of the ceremonial law, and Gentiles were admitted to equal privileges with the Jews as children of Abraham. His, that's Paul's emphatic statement, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision in Colossians 3.11, was regarded by his enemies as daring blasphemy, and they determined that his voice should be silenced, and from page 398 of the same book, and he could not count upon the sympathy and support of even his own brethren in the faith. The unconverted Jews, who had followed so closely upon his track, had not been slow to circulate the most unfavourable reports at Jerusalem, both personally and by letter, concerning him and his work, and some, even of the apostles and elders, had received these reports as truth, making no attempt to contradict them, and manifesting no desire to harmonise with him. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. There are three. Number one, the twelve disciples Paul met in Ephesus were former followers of John the Baptist, who already had become disciples of Jesus. We read about that in Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. Why do you think that it is correct to use this passage to require rebaptism of Christians already baptized by immersion from other denominations who join the Adventist faith? Is there any significance in the fact that Apollos was not rebaptized? Two, think about Paul's situation. He is rejected by his own countrymen who don't believe in Jesus. Even of the Jews who do believe in Jesus, many view Paul with great suspicion, even distrust, because they think he is perverting the landmarks. Many of the pagans hate the gospel he is proclaiming, and yet, what? Why did Paul press on? Despite all this opposition, though we are not Paul, what can we take away for ourselves from this story? And three, think about some of the other arguments that people use to try to prove either that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday or that it is no longer binding. How do we answer those arguments and do it in a way to show that obedience to the Sabbath is no more legalism than is obedience to any of the other nine commandments? That is, if we obey by faith and with the understanding of where our only hope of salvation lies. Inside Story our mission story this week is titled Just Go, and it's again by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission. Kiyong Kwon, owner of a private accounting business, is known in South Korea for leading more people to Christ than perhaps any Seventh-day Adventist pastor. But he almost didn't. The story started in late 2000 when Kwon began to study Bible prophecy. He realized with new urgency that each prophecy in Daniel had been fulfilled except Jesus' second coming. He wondered what Noah would do if he were alive today. Perhaps Noah, regardless of his career, would dedicate his life to a single mission, to proclaim Jesus' return. Quan grew convinced that he should devote his life to proclaiming Jesus' return by becoming a church planter. One morning, as he prayed, he felt God say, just go. 
The command scared him. He began giving excuses. I don't have any experience. I am not a pastor. I'm already forty. I'm afraid I'll fail. But every morning God's calling was so clear that it was painful for me, Quan said. So he prayed. If you really want me to go, show me what to do from beginning to end, then I'll go. Quan thought this was a reasonable prayer, but he didn't receive an answer. He prayed for seven days straight. On the seventh day after praying, he opened Church Compass, the magazine of the Adventist Church's Korean Union Conference. He saw a quotation from the book Life Sketches of Ellen G. White that shocked him. It read, God will have men who will venture everything and anything to save souls. Those who will not move until they can see every step of the way clearly before them will not be of advantage at this time to forward the truth of God. There must be workers now who will push ahead in the dark as well as in the light, and who will hold up bravely under discouragements and disappointed hopes, and yet work on with faith, with tears and patient hope, sowing beside all waters, trusting the Lord to bring the increase. God calls for men of nerve, of hope, faith and endurance to work to the point. That was my answer from God, he said. I was not supposed to pray to know what to do from the beginning to the end. I had to push ahead. Quan gave up and planted a church. Surprisingly, he said, I didn't have to do anything. When God works, there are miracles. And there's a photo of the smiling Kiong Quan, who's aged 56, here, and he's planted three churches in South Korea. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help plant the first Adventist church in Sejong, South Korea. Read more about Kwon next week. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the Studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.